Welcome everybody to this um, episode of Social Innovation in Conversation. Uh, my name is Vishal Kishore. I'm the Director of Applied Innovation at RMIT University, Director of our Health Transformation Lab and involved in a series of our inclusive economics initiatives. Before we begin, please allow me to respectfully acknowledge on behalf of all of us and RMIT University, the people of the Woiwurrung and the Bunurong language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation, on whose unceded lands we conduct the business of the university. We all and RMIT respectfully acknowledge the ancestors past and present of these great peoples, and indeed elders who are still to come. RMIT acknowledges the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where we conduct our business, and I myself take the dust from the feet of elders past, present and emerging. Now the um, RMIT Social Innovation Hub is a place where we come together as a community to speak of things that are important to us individually and collectively. And nothing could be more important in the current moment than the conversation that we're about to have. We across the globe seem to be overcome at the moment by things that we cannot see, but that ravage us in a range of different ways. From a virus that we can't see, that is decimating entire populations and changing economic dynamics across the globe to the kinds of more nefarious, ugly, uh, and, non and just as invisible habits of mind, of exclusion, of superiority, of discrimination that plague our social fabric in Australia and around the world. While of course the recent race-based interventions in the United States have been the focal point for a lot of international attention. Here in Australia, and particularly as we draw to the end of Reconciliation Week, we must recognise and we are recognising all of the ways in which the same stories and indeed sometimes worse stories are playing for us here in Australia as are around the world. So in this context, at this time of great upheaval and uncertainty, we are really thrilled to bring to you some wonderful thinkers from RMIT to have a conversation with each other about this moment that we find ourselves in, the dynamics that are emerging, and what we might individually and collectively do in respect of some of it. Let me quickly introduce you to, two, uh, to our two guests. We have uh, Marta Poblet, who is an Associate Professor at RMIT University's Graduate School of Business and Law. She's one of the co-founders of the Institute of Law and Technology, at the Autonomous University of Barcelona, and she holds a doctorate in law from Stanford University. Her research interests cover a vast and eclectic and brilliant range of different topics, working at the intersection of law, political sciences, and technology. Um, welcome, Marta. It's so lovely to have you here with us. Thanks. Um, I'd also like to introduce to you all Professor Aileen Morton Robinson, who is a Kurunpul woman from the Morton Bay area. She is a professor of Indigenous research at RMIT University and was the first Indigenous Distinguished Professor in 2016. She's a founding member of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association and was recently elected to, as a member uh, of the American Academy of Art and Sciences. We're so thrilled to have you with us, Aileen. Uh, thank you for joining us in this uh, important conversation. Thank you. So, um, Marta, 
having done these introductory things, uh, let's let's speak about a few things. Martha, s- tens of thousands of people have recently rallied across Australia in support of the Black Lives Matters movement. And indeed, in this movement, in this uh, gathering of people, and particularly at this moment in time of physical distancing, technology has been a really important part of generating this movement in, in the United States, in Australia. Um, and I th- we get the impression that things are playing with this movement in a slightly different way than perhaps mass mobilization movements have done uh, in the, uh, up until now. Might you say a little bit about, about how you're seeing social media technology um, and, and technology-enabled forms of, of solidarity emerging in this crisis? Yes, this is a very uh, interesting question, Vishal, because I've been following a bit this area, this space, uh, since uh, approximately 2011, if you all remember the Arab Spring. Um, That was probably not the first time, because we have episodes of using digital technologies even before the the birth of Facebook and and Twitter, Uh, people using SMS, text messages to coordinate uh, protests uh, in different countries, Philippines, Spain. Uh, Maybe the difference in 2011, the main difference was that at that time, uh, Facebook was seven years old, almost. uh, Twitter was uh, even even younger. And um, protests started to leverage those tools uh, that were not initially thought as uh, as tools for mass participation and mobilization, especially Facebook, uh, that was born in a, on on a on an American campus uh, to connect people uh, on campuses. But uh, uh, protesters and activists have found, found clever ways to leverage those tools uh, to connect, coordinate, strategize. Um, and, and develop new forms of political activism that at that time were uh, very innovative. The downside of that at the same time uh, was that because those tools were not initially designed for that purpose, they came also with flaws and, and the flaws being uh, that uh, protesters, activists could be um, prosecuted, jailed, uh, for posting social media content that obviously uh, would would go against uh, governments and and mainstream um, policies. So it 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 ended the way it ended, as we know, in some Arab countries, uh, Syria, uh, Libya. So we have examples of of uh, users of technology that unfortunately didn't bring the change uh, that that people would have expected initially. Uh, so now, we, we to answer a video question and, and not to, to divert much uh, uh, with my answer, Black Lives Matter, again, was a, was a movement born in 2013. As some people said, spontaneously emerging uh, from Twitter using ha- the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And it, this, is, this is certainly the case, but, but if those movements don't have at the same time uh, active networks of, of uh, activists who know how to organize both online and offline, which, uh, by, and by that I typically refer to blended spaces. Uh, so they are um, um, smart enough to organize uh, the protests in, in both 
physical and online settings, then it's it's very difficult to, to, to make those movements sustainable. And I think one of the virtues of Black Lives Matter uh, was precisely that they were able to, to use uh, Twitter, the digital space of Twitter, uh, to make um, uh, the hashtag uh, protest very, very salient, but at the same time organizing a network uh, that would uh, quickly become an international network of support with different chapters across the world. And and now, if six six years later we see those uh, demonstrations, rallies in in Sydney, in Melbourne, uh, in support of of uh, of that movement, is not just because a few weeks ago uh, the 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 dramatic incidents in Minneapolis took place, but because there was already this substrate of political activism organizing uh, for a few years and, and, and now crystallizing in, in such movements of, of support. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Marta. Uh, uh, Aileen, I'm going to ask you uh, a question, if I may. As Marta said, um, we, we, we might imagine that the movement began, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, began in around and about 2013. We might similarly imagine because of the flashpoint of uh, um, uh, of the George Floyd death um, uh, recently, we might also imagine that this, we can we could come to the imagination that this is somehow an American uh, uh, problem or an American-based issue. And indeed, we've heard some of that in public discourse. Um, but at the same time, when we look at the numbers the, in Australia, the, the tale of the numbers tells us something far more frightening, I think. So, uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody in comparison to the United States, Aileen, you, I suspect you know these numbers, but uh, African-Americans make up about 12% of the US population, adult population, but 33% of uh, the US prison population. Whereas in Australia, Indigenous people make up about 3% of the population and 30% of prisoners, making the rate of incarceration um, staggeringly higher. Um, Aileen, in, in that context and in that background, we'd, we'd love to hear your reflections on the way in which the United States uh, uh, dynamic and the Australian story relate to each other and how it's being experienced. You know, the, the, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody itself, while it's promoted as sort of, uh, you know, this thing that... Uh, provided us with insights about the deaths in custody the big like the elephant in the room in the deaths in custody was always racism and uh you know the uh the one uh reference to uh, basically doing something about racism was uh the re recommendation i think it's 329 where um recon that's where reconciliation came from you know, and, and mm. so people don't kind of even make that link about where reconciliation came from, from the deaths in custody. But I guess, so I just want to contextualise that because I feel that um, one of the things, you know, the key in all of this, of course, is race and the way that that gets played out. That's the commonality, I guess, in terms of the United States and here. The difference is, however, that race in the United States is fundamentally something that is um, being promoted uh, as um, as existing, 
yes. Whereas in Australia, we still basically deny that race even exists. We, uh, I mean, and these are the two ironies, despite the fact that the foundation of both countries, like uh, in America, the narrative is that, you know, slavery was one of the, um, one of the keys to the foundation of, of uh, the USA. In Australia, race was also, you know, uh, foundational to this country in terms of the Australian uh, constitution with the uh, first act of uh, the new parliament being the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, which actually was the white Australia policy in practice. Um, so we've got two situations. However, I'm gonna talk about what I want, why I'm sort of going down this road is that race then became in Australia um, hidden. <clears throat> and whereas in America, race continued to be visible. And the way in which uh, things uh, were managed here was they put Aboriginal people away, out of sight, out of mind, right? Incarcerated on reserves, missions, cattle stations. And they controlled our, uh, our you know, everything. So most white Australians did not meet an Aborigine, didn't really know an Aborigine um, because we were out of sight, out of mind. Um, there were those that saw us but didn't see us. Yes. So we so the missions that were on the outskirts of towns, people knew they were there. So they saw us but they didn't see us. Then on the and you contrast that with, I guess, the whole kind of um, uh, uh, way in which I guess race has always had in America um, witnessing. Yes in a way in which, and I guess this comes to the point, uh, Marta, about technology. Technology now allows us to bear witness in a way in which we couldn't before, yeah? But in America, because the violence was so overt with the lynchings, there was always a way in which there was a bearing witness to the atrocities, yes? Um, here, it's been hidden. and okay. And so you can have a situation where we have, you know, actually it's 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 over 500 deaths in custody if we count the first uh, first lot of deaths that the Royal Commission looked into. Um, we have a situation where the deaths in custody in Australia, um, in one sense, um, can be uh, held with di disregard. I, I would say the kind of racism here is disregard, disdain and loathing. Of Aboriginal people, right? So it's a it's a situation where people don't really care. I think what happened in uh, America is that because of the civil rights movement, because of the Constitution, there's a way in which that plays out in public discourse, so that there is a bearing witness um, through legal and regulatory mechanisms in ways in which here the bearing of witness is still uh, not really visible uh, in this, in the sense that a lot of what happens to us happens um, out of sight, out of mind, right? So the out of sight, out of mind here and the hidden kind of way in which race racism operates in Australia to me is quite different, I think. And I, I, I think that what occurred in the United States 
because the Black Lives Matter movement also had impetus, don't forget, from the death of Rodney King in the 1990s. So it's it's got a long history, even though, you know, a pub, and it's it is social media that actually has given given it the the profile. But um, you know, I I do think that there there's race is the key, but it's the way in which race plays out in America as opposed to here in Australia. Um, that we see different reactions um, that have been produced by certain historical conditions. And, you know, the numbers, I, I was buoyant at the numbers that turned out to march. And I think that um, social media enabled that. And I think the virus enabled that because the virus has certainly given people time to think about their humanity and their vulnerability as humans uh, in ways in which they probably haven't had to contemplate very much before. Um, but I'll leave it at I that. Mean, thank, yeah. No, no, I think that's wonderful. Uh, and a, a question for both of you, in a sense, that Aileen, you've talked about some of the differences, the, the visibility, the invisibility, the, the act of bearing witness mm -hmm. being quite a different act in different contexts and the, the difference between Australia and the United States. Um, what would you say, or do you have any thoughts, do either of you have thoughts on what that kind of the, what the idea of bearing witness and the idea of visibility and invisibility may have for strategies, be they strategies of solidarity or strategies of, of um, strategic action, strategies of action um, that should be pursued in Australia in this context? Yeah, happy to, to take the question. Yeah, again, a very complex question. Um, uh, now I remember this uh, study that has recently released by researchers from the Australian National University about unconscious bias uh, and finding that three in four people, Australian pe uh, citizens, have an implicit or negative bias against Indigenous Australians. Um, so that means uh, that that uh, uh, there is an automatic reaction, unconscious reaction. Of, uh, uh, again, uh, Indigenous Australians. So, in that regard, um, racism is there, uh, and I think it's best to fully acknowledge that uh, than deny that those those type of facts. Otherwise, it's very difficult to build any any conscious strategy uh, to face to face those issues. But your question about yes, we have more access to uh, all sorts of media contents, uh, open source information, uh, many types of, of uh, pieces of information that, that we can potentially use to build strategies. And, and I think that that's a very important point because contents per se, technology per se, uh, will not be able to help us in, in that, in that uh, uh, strategy unless we are not able to build some narrative uh, around it. Uh, for example, uh, going back to the Libya case back in 2011, there was, a, for the first time, there were a lot of footage of uh, human rights violations on, on, on the field. Uh, and those, those uh, videos, those uh, contents were collected not by professional human rights organization staff, but by regular citizens. So a question that was raised at that time was whether these contents could be used as evidence in, uh, in legal cases. Uh, 
eventually, uh, and after a long process of, of uh, vetting that information, uh, passing that information for uh, to different processes of authentication and verification. Uh, I'll give you an example. The, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, would would say that uh, that for the first time they had to rethink what what the court would consider as evidence so as to include social media. Uh, obviously properly curated, uh, authenticated and verified, but that could be uh, considered as evidence in court. Uh, uh, we'll see more of that. We'll see probably uh, more um, cases where where social media contents will be able to count as legal evidence in court. Uh, but for that, again, we need to have processes in place. Uh, we need to create the protocols for this to happen. So it's not just the mere facts that we can collect, that we can produce, the contents we can access using social media, but how we create collectively the structures and, and the organizations that make this possible uh, to, to be actionable in courts. Um, Aileen, you also have some, some thoughts? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm just agreeing with Marta, I think, that, and that's the work, I guess, of lawyers who, um, to create, um, you know, precedents, I guess, for the use of social media, to make those arguments in court, to break open um, the mm. system so that, you know, what, you know, we can extend what constitutes uh, evidence. Um, I, th I think that... Um, what we are seeing is strategizing. You know, we are seeing people using uh, social media at, to bear witness. And I think that that is an incredibly important strategy because we certainly wouldn't have um, the profiling that we've had about the deaths in custody without social media. So it, it is a useful strategy and a useful technology um, that allows you to to bear witness. But I think the other side of that is we also have, have to bear witness uh, in, in the sense of socially. And what I mean by that is at the dinner table where we're sitting with people, you know, we have to basically talk about um, racism as, as a very real thing. And what is it that we, you know, it is a disease and how, a social disease. And how do we seek to uh, remove it and I think that, you know, at least in the United States, they do actually talk about racism. Uh, in, in Australia, we have unfortunately have only, and I say this, you know, in a, in a sense that racism has always been dealt with in terms of uh, legislation and policy. Racism has not been dealt with in our universities. We have no race studies in this country. We don't provide people with, um, you know, the opportunity to um, understand this as an intellectual field of inquiry. So what we have in Australia is denial that it's there or the remedies are usually through policy and, and the law. And then the law has a very narrow idea about what constitutes racism, right? So it's so very rare is it to get cases up. So I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I would like to see in the in the academy is that more and more uh, we have to we have to advocate.
for critical race studies in this country. Um, and I, you know, I mean, and it, that in and of itself is testimony to the racism in the country. The fact that we don't have an intellectual history of dealing with it. But in other former colonies like Canada, United States, um, you know, New Zealand, Hawaii, you can you can go and do uh, uh, enrolling courses at university, Britain, you know, London School of Economics. You can, that you know, wherever colonisation has been, usually they they have you know uh, critical race studies or race studies or critical whiteness studies as part of um, you know a way of giving people tools and knowledge to be able to understand something that creates in people a very emotional and psychological response, uh, which is kind of in one sense why most people and most and therefore the idea of structural racism is not understood, you know, and the way in which racism gets reduced to behaviour um, is, uh, and so, it, you know, it becomes the very interpersonal rather than people understanding that there are actually conditions and structural uh, apparatuses at play that produce um, behaviours. Um, and the law in one sense is is very much one of those mechanisms that uh, has, has, I think, in terms of racism failed us. You know, the, the Black Lives Matter is um, really important, an, an historical moment, but the question is, for me, when the pandemic, if it, if it ceases, um, what then? What mm. then? You know? I've been really surprised over the last um, little while by the number of uh, people who have um, indicated to me that they, um, they are keen to be uh, so people who are not of colour, white Anglo-Saxon uh, people um, with a sense of social conscience and solidarity who want to know how they can usefully play a role um, in these kinds of debates, what they can do, how they can support, how they can engage. Um, would either of you have any advice for such people who wish to, um, to, to, to bring racism front and centre, to be able to examine it in this country in a way that perhaps it hasn't been examined before. What are the um, what are the things that they should and they shouldn't do um, in order to to foster that different kind of conversation? Uh, yes, we have the digital tools. Um, we have many digital tools available uh, to make those. Uh, fight visible and especially the the fight against racism mm, my only concern is that these are not our digital tools uh, we don't have ownership on facebook we don't own twitter we can uh, get easily dragged into all the sea of misinformation fake news confrontational politics and that may engulf easily our strategies. Uh, so one of the one of the things I would suggest, not a recommendation, but but typically the the tools that work best in 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 your strategies are the, the tools that you you design by yourself. So I'm not saying that we should 
not use social me mainstream social media to to make those uh, those uh, strategies more visible but at the same time it could be interesting to try to develop uh, your own tools and own them because that's that will be the space where you can uh, build your debates your strategies and own those uh, narratives and and to, to some extent have more ownership on, uh, of them rather than let them uh, flow into into the huge media space with uh, with um, all this misinformation and and um, fake news that that will definitely don't play uh, uh, in in your favor think of how many times uh, you voices get just drawn uh, in the middle of debates where uh, bots uh, and, and automatic uh, uh, algorithms just take over uh, human debate. So my only concern is that by not owning the platforms and the spaces, we, we definitely risk our voices to get lost. So one piece of advice, if I had to, to provide any would be try to develop the tools at the same time you develop the strategy uh, because at least you have something that you will own and, and manage in a, in a sustainable way. Um, and and that's that's my, my advice. On a more personal terrain, I would say, huh, I would like to one day to be able to make an acknowledgement of country in Bungurun language, mm. not in English. Uh, because I, I love to learn the languages of the places where I live and, and it's it's uh, easy to to live in France and learn French. It's easy to go to Australia and, and uh, improve your English, but it's very hard to learn Bunguru. <laughs> so how this can happen, I'm not sure, but I'm sure that digital platforms could facilitate that process for people who are keen to learn uh, the language of the country as well. Thank you, Marta. Aileen? Um, How I can people help? Well, I, I'd like... <laughs> my view um, is, and this is kind of, you know, because, I mean, my area of expertise is critical whiteness studies and racism. So if we are to bring... The, if we are to change things we need to really um, stop asking those that uh, receive other recipients of racism to do the heavy lifting right? the perpetrators usually need to do the work and what that means is taking responsibility for the fact that you know probably 90 percent uh, of uh, the time in terms of your the way in which you think about people who are other, uh, you know, is done through the, the lens of race. I mean, that's how they know us, right? That's how, you know, that that's the kind of um, thing I think that that's difficult about asking how can people be good allies when you know that they've been raised socially or they've been in, and culturally to understand the other through race, right? So you're talking about trying to dismantle an epistemology, an, an epistemy that has came, that's come out of the Enlightenment. It's the way in which, you know, where racialized knowledge um, took uh, uh, over basically and came out in terms of um, the way people thought about uh, humans, others, people of colour. So 
how do we how do we as academics um, shed light on the way in which knowledge itself is produced to actually perceive the other through race, right? So I'm not right. So you know, you know, in one sense, you know, talking about it as an outcome doesn't get us to where it began. And I and this is my point about the way in which it's not an intellectual field in Australia. If you don't understand, like most people think that you're talking about race when you are talking about the other, or that you're talking about race when you say that person's a black person, or that you're you're only considered to be a racist if you're, uh, that you're not a racist because you're not into racial hatred, right? So, you know, there's all, the, all of that kind of stuff operating in public discourse about racism. Um, and yet the very kind of epistemological logics, I guess, that uh, came out of the Enlightenment were racialised and racialised by, and I say that by the sense that, that, that all knowledge is marked by, it's just not understood that way. The assumption is that racial knowledge is only that knowledge that we, we produce about the other, not the very racialised logics that go into to making the other and the self. So for me, um, you know, the white self has been constructed through racialised knowledge, white knowledge, the knowledge itself is racialised, yeah, in producing whiteness and producing the, the other, the black other, right? So I would like to see, you know, some kind of um, stand taken by academics in Australia. I mean, I think one of the things that's really been disappointing but not surprising is there's been no statements put out by any academic associations in this country condemning condemning the police brutality. There is no, whereas in the States that's happened. A lot of my colleagues are involved in that, right? They've come out with statements and it, there's a silence in Australian academia. And the silent that, so when I talk about the way in which race operates here differently, I'm talking about the fact that there's still that, that um, disregard, the disdain, right? There's a sense in which um, you don't even matter to matter <laughs> mm. um, as an Indigenous person, right? And so you're, um, you're, you're erased continually in the everyday. And what happened with the States was a black body was on television and people also saw a lot of white people supporting the protests. That gave courage as well to white people in Australia to take to the streets. You know, because as I was saying, it's not, it's not just that, you know, I mean, there have been lots of and lots and lots of deaths in custody in America and in Australia. Um, and I think that um, if we are to change the world, we've got, we've, we've got to understand the logics the rationalised logics that produce knowledge and how that works in terms of the way in which we perceive the earth as well, right? So it's a similar, similar kind of logics at play, yep. What we do to the earth, we don't see the earth as a living thing, for example, right, in our thinking, like the way in which we've been trained to think. Um, and so we can do things to her because she's not alive. 
um, and the and we can position her in a particular way in order to rationalise our extraction. So we can dehumanise people of colour in order to brutalise them. I mean, I don't, there is no quick fix. This thing took centuries, <laughs> you know, and, um, but at least we can have a consciousness, you know, create a consciousness of actually about the way we think, the way that we think about ourselves as humans. And what is that relationship to the planet and to every other living thing as well as each other, you know? And that requires a very different way to be in the world, you know? Um, so I'm, you know, I, I mean, you know, I retire next year and I think I'll be glad of it. Um, but this is sort of my now, the, the kind of work I'm kind of trying to get to it. Um, is the last sort of monograph that I'll probably write in the academy. But I do think that, um, you know, uh, superficial approaches will only have superficial effects and will only, you know, so, you know, we do need, the academy needs to start. So I, I you know, it's, it's why I, I don't kind of, I don't want to talk about inclusion because you can't talk about inclusion and you talk about exclusion. I don't want to, you know, there, there are so many things that, uh, you know, are up, upsetting at a very personal level for me about, about the way in which Aboriginal people are treated, but it's the way in which all people of colour are treated. Um, and I feel that we have to, we have to reconfigure our humanness. That for me is the crunch. We have to be we have to be different humans. Now, whether technology can help us to do that, um, or can take us in a different direction, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm concerned about lots of the discourses about robotics and humanness. Uh, that you know, when I worked at QUT, I was. Um, very kind of interested in watching the way in which people wanted to turn robots into humans. And, you know, people talking about how we could imprint our, our, our genetic DNA into a robot and that would be the human of the future. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty kind of, you know, you just sit there and go, right. And again, that's a disassociative you know that that hum that thinking about that is disassociative from the very uh, you know living entity that sustains all of us. You know we are biological, and uh, you know I've said before that we can be exceptional as humans, but we don't have to be exceptional as humans at the expense of everything else. Um, anyway, that's probably enough for me. Aileen, that's uh, wonderful. That's you know, wonderful. Thank you. And I think um, both, uh, I, I take from both um, your comments, Aileen, and also Marta, a series of, um, a series of pleas, in a sense, a plea for association rather than disassociation, a plea for visible rather than invisible, uh, a plea for holism um, rather than partiality, and perhaps more than anything uh, else, a plea for 
a recognition that we make the world as we make ourselves. And if we want to make a different world, we need to remake ourselves in a sense. Um, and that involves taking control of some of the tools that we might use, as Marsha was telling us, um, and also indeed just the very way that we are. What does it mean to be human and how should we be human differently? Mm -hmm.